I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. So most of you probably will have seen the post that I put up on Substack. Uh, This week, I let myself get sucked into watching the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, and that tanked my productivity. Um, And so I'm not going to make a habit out of this. Um, There's enough current events commentary out there, and keeping up with day-to-day events makes it impossible to focus on what I really need to be focusing on. But I figured since this is what I have been doing all week, um, I'd ask you guys if you wanted to hear my thoughts on the situation, and most of you said you did, so here we are. Now, if you follow me on Twitter, you already know that I feel very strongly about this case. I actually think that this case has a fair amount of historical importance. Because I think that in the last few years, we've... Well, put it this way. I think, I, I think that the last few years will be looked back on as a pretty unique uh, historical moment. And I think in many ways, the Kyle Rittenhouse case neatly captures many elements of what makes it unique. Now, let's start by just laying out the basic facts of the case. What we know, starting with the shooting of Jacob Blake, the thing that set the whole thing off. This is all straight from the investigative reports on the incident from the Kenosha County uh, investigators and from President Biden's Department of Justice. That's where all this information comes from. I'm not getting this from newspaper reports. On August 23rd, 2020, a woman named Laquisha Booker calls 911. It's a woman in Kenosha, Wisconsin. She says that a man named Jacob Blake is at her home and that he has taken the keys of her rental vehicle and intended to drive away in it. So two cops are dispatched, and before they get there, they are made aware of some details about who they're about to be dealing with. Jacob Blake had an arrest warrant out for domestic violence and felony sexual assault. The previous May, one morning, a woman was sleeping in bed with one of her children, and Jacob Blake broke into her house and said, I want my shit. And when she woke up, he was standing over her, and he reached down between her legs and forcibly penetrated her with his fingers. And he pulled them out and said, it smells like you've been with other men. The woman told police that she had known Jacob Blake for about eight years and that he had abused her when he got drunk at least twice a year. So that was in May. This is in August. A couple months later, he's got a felony arrest warrant out. And the cops are now responding to a domestic violence call for a person they know has a warrant out for domestic violence and sexual assault. They know that this means they are required to serve that warrant and arrest him. They're also told before they arrive that the dispute involves children. When they arrive, Laquisha Booker flags them down and she shouts that Jacob Blake is right over there, currently attempting to take her car 
and that he already has her children in the car that he's attempting to steal effectively. And so the cops look in the direction of Blake and they see him putting a child in the back seat of the vehicle. One of the three officers who are there moves to make the arrest with the help of two others, one of which is a female. Blake ignores verbal commands from the officers, and when they go to physically restrain him, he begins fighting with them. They get him down to the ground, but he's able to fight them off and then get back up and get away from the cops. Two of the officers use their tasers on Jacob Blake, and both times he just rips the prongs out and the tasers have no effect, so they've exhausted that method. One of the officers tries to stun Jacob Blake by physically striking him with his taser, and that has no effect. Now, as all this is going on, Jacob Blake is armed with a knife. After he's gotten away from the cops and is walking around the front of the SUV to get into the vehicle to drive away with the children he is attempting to kidnap, the knife is now open and the blade is exposed. You can see this on the video and it was confirmed by witnesses. The police command him to drop the knife and he refuses. And so this man, who again has a felony warrant for domestic violence and sexual assault, is now attempting to get into the driver's seat of a vehicle containing children. After having already fought off police, after already being unaffected by two tasers, and now he's getting into a stolen vehicle with kidnapped kids while holding a knife. The officers are in a situation where they have to decide if they are going to allow this man to drive away with these kids. Is he going to hold them hostage? Like, you don't know what he's going to do. One officer puts his hands on Jacob Blake again to try to restrain him, grabs sort of the, the top of his, of his tank top he's wearing, and according to both of the other officers, Jacob Blake begins to twist toward the officer and drive the knife toward the cop's torso, and the officer's account was confirmed by two non-police eyewitnesses who were there, and at that point, he is shot. The officer fired until Blake dropped the knife, and it was seven shots in total. The cops then began to render aid to Jacob Blake until the ambulance arrived. And then what happened? We all remember what happened. After a summer of the most widespread and destructive riots in 50 years, what do the corporate press and many Democratic Party politicians do? We all know what they did. White police officer shoots another innocent black man. Now, there are innocent black men who get shot by police. This was not one of them. This was a man with a history of violence and sexual assault, with a drawn knife who was shot when all else had failed as he was getting into a car with children, who had already successfully fought off attempts to tase and physically subdue him. And, according to five witnesses in total, had begun to twist toward the officer in a threatening manner before he was shot. Your vice president, Kamala Harris, went to Kenosha to visit Jacob Blake, told him that she was so proud of him. Then candidate Joe Biden put out an official statement. These shots pierce the soul of our nation. And after a summer of deadly riots, think back to what it was like. Whole sections of cities reduced to total lawlessness. People being attacked, 
People driving cars and trucks randomly into lines of police officers. People going around shooting off fireworks at houses, burning down whole blocks in cities all over the country. And Biden's statement says, we are at an inflection point. He said, we must fight. The people who craft these statements think very carefully about the words they use. Okay? They know exactly what they're doing. They knew what they were doing then. They wanted violence, and they got it. After George Floyd died last year, and a violent mob burned down a Minneapolis police precinct, Kamala Harris promoted a fundraiser for bail money for the people that were arrested at the riot. She got on TV while cities were burning and said it should not stop. That is a quote. And this is really what's different about the moment that we are in. Okay, you can go back to the late 60s and early 70s and things were crazier than they are now as far as the amount of political violence and extremism. But while you had some radical chic celebrities and some winking at the level of like local government, local authority, plenty of cowardice from liberal authorities on the national level and, and at universities and stuff, you never saw the major institutions, okay, the Democratic Party, the corporate media, the universities, or any of these institutions throw their support behind the Weather Underground or the Black Liberation Army or the FALN or any of these groups. It would have been unthinkable back then for a vice presidential candidate in the midst of historically destructive nationwide rioting to go on TV and say it should not stop. A vice presidential candidate would have been dropped from the ticket if they did that back then. This is new. The political violence we see today is fundamentally different from what we've seen in the past for one major reason. In the Watts riots in 65 or Detroit 67 or in Newark or any of the other MLK riots in 68, those events were the result of two things, okay? Desperate, angry people erupting in disorganized rage at the circumstances of their lives and the inattention of their society to their circumstances. And then criminal elements within those communities taking advantage of the chaos to go do criminal things. And that was true to a large degree in the 1992 Rodney King riots, although things had begun to change. You, you know, the, the attack on Koreans, for example, shows that there was a darker element that ran through that incident. But that's, this, that's not what we're seeing today. You know, the political violence we see today is not primarily carried out by desperate people. It is organized and facilitated and directed by college-educated activists, well-funded activists. The Nation of Islam was a prison movement. The Black Panthers were a street movement. Black Lives Matter is a creature of the universities. The core Antifa activists are middle-class and above white people. These are not semi-random eruptions of rage from desperate people who have no other recourse because the system won't listen to them. Black Lives Matter got $12 million from Google last year, $10 million each from Amazon and Facebook. They got millions from video game companies, retail companies, celebrities, wealthy individuals. The Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, which is just one of many Many nonprofits operating under the name Black Lives Matter collected over $90 million alone in 2020. Billions were donated to racial justice causes in 2020 by the most powerful people and institutions in the country. 
just about every big city in the country has been controlled for decades by the political party that a large chunk of those donations to Black Lives Matter actually ended up with. Protests and political violence have always been part of the American political environment, but in the past it was always understood that this was something that you resorted to when you were simply not being permitted to redress your grievances through the legitimate use of the system. You know, in the 1960s, black people were being chased away from voting places by armed thugs so that they couldn't elect people who would change things, who would adhere to federal desegregation laws, for example. You know, that is a situation where marginalized and disenfranchised people have no choice but to seek means of redress outside the system because the system is being illegitimately blocked. Most of the leaders of the Black Panthers ended up dead or in prison. The leaders of today's movements get invited to the Met Gala. They get invited to the White House and get six-figure sinecures at universities and NGOs. These are not people who have no other way to make their point. People who agree with them control almost every institution and power center in the country. No individual or institution stands up to them with any vehemence. You know, the vast majority of the evil racist Republicans spoke glowingly of Black Lives Matter even as riots were happening last year. Now, I actually have quite a bit, bit of sympathy for Black Lives Matter. I want to be clear about that. Now, everyone talks about the history of black America. No one talks much about the future. And uh, there's a reason for that, because the truth is that the future is not looking bright. Up through the 1960s and 70s, you know, African Americans had a unique place in the American social and political fold. It was a marginalized place. It was an impoverished place. It was a place that demanded redress and reform. But there was a place for them to stand and make those demands on the other 90% of the country that was white and had not had the same disadvantages as the black population when you know the country was being built and filled out, when the capital stock of the United States was being built up when real estate was being claimed and settled throughout the country, when, when, the, when the people of the U.S. were sorting out who was going to live where and have what and under what circumstances, black people were excluded from a large part of that process. These were all discussions that needed to be had, and they were being had, between the descendants of African slaves and the descendants of the European settlers and immigrants to the United States, which between those two groups covered about 97 to 98% of the American population. That world is gone. And it's not coming back. The United States has added more than the entire population of France to our population through immigration alone since the 1970s. It's much higher when you factor in illegal immigration. The non-Hispanic white population of the United States will be an overall minority in the country very soon. Which means that the group who actually bore some collective responsibility for the unjust ways in which the African-American lot had fallen, are not going to be in a position of dominant political power from which they can negotiate a settlement for that. That dynamic between the American descendants of slaves and the white population is gone, and it's not coming back. The people who have arrived since the 1970s, they feel no historical responsibility for slavery. You know, people who came from Vietnam as refugees after that war, they, they feel no responsibility for slavery or Jim Crow. Many of those new immigrant groups, when they moved to the United States, like, like, like many immigrants, 
they moved into uh, cheaper, more available neighborhoods at first when they were first getting here, which often meant moving into or adjacent to poor black neighborhoods. And as we've seen with the Korean American population in Los Angeles or the Latino immigrant population in California in general, uh, there's a lot of friction there. Their opinions and relations with the African American population as a whole are often not great. You know, the idea that the high violent crime rates in the African American community are the result of historical injustices might fly with white people descended from the people who lived with slavery or segregation, but it does not fly with the new immigrant groups that already make up supermajorities in large parts of the country and will be very soon straight majorities in whole states and, and eventually in the country overall when you combine them. And so where does that leave poor black people? It leaves them in a very difficult, very compromised position. Because their neighborhoods are as bad as they've ever been. Their economic situation is as bad as it's ever been. Worse, really, because the overall opportunities available to grab onto those first few lower rungs of the socioeconomic ladder are much fewer and far between. And there's a lot more competition for them. You know, that's one of the things, this is just kind of an aside, but... You know, that so many of these online conservative types or many of the self-improvement tech bro types really do not understand. They like to say that today there are more opportunities than ever for people to go make something of themselves. You know, look at all the tools we have, the technology, the ability to make connections and leverage expertise from all over the world, the free learning opportunities available on the, on the web. Look at me, right? Thanks to you guys, I'm able to support myself by making this podcast. But most of that is talking about rungs that are, you know, halfway up the ladder. Two-thirds of the way up the ladder. It's true that there are a lot of opportunities for smart, motivated, middle-class people to become upper-middle-class. Or, or lower-middle-class people to become middle-class, even. There are a hundred books and self-help websites out there telling people, here's how I quit my job and now support myself as an online surfing instructor. And then you read the person's story, and the job they quit was an investment banker. And that's good. Good for you. And good because there's one less banker in the world. But we're talking about something very different when we talk about people trying to climb up out of broken families in ruined ghetto neighborhoods. That's a totally different conversation. You see all this publicity about making sure that the flag officer ranks of the U.S. military or you know, the management levels of the CIA or the incoming class at Harvard is sufficiently diverse. But other than the hot-button issue of police shootings, which are useful to drive engagement and get Democrats elected to, to political office, uh, no one with any power spends any real time or any real effort on actually trying to improve day-to-day -day life in the ghetto. People don't even really address the question in that way. They don't even really think of it in terms of how we can improve day-to-day -day life in the ghetto. Instead, they come up with ways to try to help people escape the ghetto so that the most talented or motivated 10 to 15% of people that are in there can go to college and finally achieve the great American dream of moving to a white neighborhood. And I know that sounds crass, but that is how most of our programs are geared. Earlier this year, you had that Black Lives Matter activist who had become rich from her position as a leader in the movement. And what does she do? She go back and reinvest that money, her, her newfound activist wealth in the hood? No, she bought a $1.4 million home up in the hills of all-white Topanga Canyon 
a little weekend getaway spot for rich Angelinos 15 minutes from the Malibu beaches. The reality is nobody has a plan. Nobody has a plan to improve the situation of poor black people. And they know that. And as, as black people are losing their unique historical position in America, as we transition to being a country where they're just going to be one among many, many countless groups in a hodgepodge multicultural society, the powers that be are going to be less and less interested in even trying. You're already seeing this in areas of Southern California that used to be black and are now Latino. Countless stories of Latinos, for example, using affirmative action and anti-discrimination laws to drive black people out of employment opportunities. There was a hospital in L.A. a few years back. It was in a mostly black neighborhood that had transitioned to being mostly Latino, and a local Latino activist group won a lawsuit claiming that the staff of the hospital must reflect the demographics of the surrounding community, and so a bunch of African Americans, and some Asian Americans too, lost their jobs to make room for the new majority, the new Latino staff. Now, this is the kind of dog-eat-dog jungle that you ask for in a multicultural society where no group feels any particular obligation to any other group, and where the national idea is too weak to command overall allegiance from people. These are not good developments for poor African Americans. They are already at or near the bottom of the ladder. Their communities are already blighted. And the interest of the authorities in figuring out any way to improve their situation is going to become less and less even as the ladder is pulled up further and further out of reach. And who are they going to appeal to? You know, they're going to be talking to people, the people in charge in the new America in the coming decades, who are going to say, look, we didn't have anything to do with slavery. Hell, we got here after the whole country was officially desegregated. You know, your grievances aren't against us, and they, they can't even said to be said to be against the nation as a whole anymore because the people who did that to you are no longer in charge. So you can just get in line with everyone else. And that is a terrible injustice because black people have a very unique situation in, in, in the United States and in our history. And it's a terrible situation, but it is the situation that we have created and, and made inevitable. And so I look at Black Lives Matter as a sort of, you know, last-ditch, desperate attempt by a people who are sliding downward in an increasingly competitive dog-eat-dog society to, to attempt to create some kind of African-American political consciousness and sense of collective identity because they are going to need it in, in this hyper-competitive intergroup politics of the future that we have set this country up for. Of course, the problem is the same problem that they had in the 1960s. Their leaders are dog shit, morons and grifters, most of them. And the ones that aren't morons or grifters are these overeducated ideologues who are more interested in Marxist theory than they are in the simple fact that life in the ghetto sucks. The suffering of poor black people is exploited on every front. You know, the movie and recording industries make money glorifying the exact lifestyle that gets people like Jacob Blake shot by police. The Democratic Party does what it can to channel ghetto rage into votes for the same people who have been in charge of these cities for decades. And then you have all these shills, all these self-appointed activist leaders who encourage ghetto uprisings that destroy black neighborhoods and black lives from the comfort of their penthouses, all to the applause of white celebrities and politicians. It's disgusting. 
Now, these are the people who get the media time. These are the people who get the corporate donations. These are the people who get invited to build their clout by visiting the White House or speaking at Democratic Party events, and they are parasites who feed off the vulnerability and suffering of poor black people. So these are not bottom-up movements that have risen up to make demands from an inattentive ruling class. Okay, just because the thing that these people are parasitizing is black suffering does not mean that those suffering people are the ones behind this movement. That is not, it's obviously not what's going on here. The ruling class supports these movements. The ruling class funds these movements. If they were threatened by them, do you think they would have that much support? During last year's riots, a group of left-wing activists in Seattle started a GoFundMe to raise money for a food truck and a fleet of vehicles that would explicitly provide food, refreshments, and supplies to rioters nationwide. In case anybody was uncertain about what their mission was, they named the organization and the fundraiser Riot Kitchen. They raised almost $60,000, including $500 from GoFundMe itself, from the company. The same GoFundMe that banned any fundraising for Kyle Rittenhouse's legal fees, despite the fact that they routinely allow fundraisers for legal fees, including heinous violent crimes. And why not? You know, in America, you are still innocent. I know this is crazy, but you are still innocent until a jury finds you guilty, and every American is entitled to a competent legal defense. That group with their riot kitchen heard the call from the corporate press and the Democratic Party leaders after Jacob Blake was shot in Kenosha. They knew what was coming because everybody knew what was coming. And so they loaded up their vehicles and they headed out to Wisconsin. And they didn't just bring food. They brought helmets. They brought gas masks. They had bottles. They were arrested outside of Kenosha, filling up containers with gasoline to bring into the city to distribute to the rioters. And of course, they were all released without being charged. They weren't the only ones that came from out of town. Kenosha police data reported that over half of all the people arrested in the first two nights had come from out of town. So this was not an uprising of the Kenosha underclass against the system that had been oppressing him. This was an attack on an American city incited by Democratic Party politicians and the corporate media and facilitated and carried out by organizations that receive huge amounts of money from corporate America. You think that sounds too harsh? Do you, do you, think, do you not think that they incited the incident? Did they not know what was going to happen when they put out statements framing the Jacob Blake shooting falsely as yet another racially motivated attempted murder by police? Did they not know what was going to happen? Think back to August 2020. We all knew what was going to happen. And I'm not saying they should have suppressed the story or downplayed it on a false basis. All they had to do was not lie. They lied about what happened knowing that the result would be mass violence against the small town of Kenosha, Wisconsin. They lied knowing that. Just like they're lying today on every channel in every newspaper about the shootings involving Kyle Rittenhouse. And so let's talk about that. These are the circumstances that led Kyle Rittenhouse and many others to decide that they had no choice but to try to defend what they could of the town of Kenosha from the violent assault that everyone knew was coming. We just set the stage for why people would think that they had no choice but to do that. 
Many people in the media and the Rittenhouse prosecutors have made a lot of hay out of the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse came from out of state. He crossed state lines. The town he lives in is literally on the Wisconsin border, as in the northern border of his town is literally the border of Wisconsin. Kenosha is the nearest city of any size to the tiny town that Rittenhouse lived in with his mother. Rittenhouse's father and several other relatives lived in Kenosha. He had friends there. He worked there. Earlier in the day before the incident, he was volunteering to scrub graffiti from the previous night's riots off of the walls of a school. Not his own school, by the way, just a school. So, you know, think to your own life. To put it in concrete terms, okay? Think to your own life. The people you know. There's a violent riot in your town. The place is a mess. Some of the people you know are going to go volunteer the time that they have the next day to go help scrub graffiti off of a school. Some of the people you know would not do that. Not because they're bad people, just because it's only certain people who decide to get off the couch without anyone prodding them and to go do something like that, to go help with something that doesn't affect them in any direct way. The people that would do that, those people in your life who would do that, who, who would say, you know what, I'm not really busy today, so I'm not going to play video games, I'm not going to fart around on the internet all day, I'm going to head down to that school nearby and see if they need some help cleaning up. The people you know in real life who are like that, my guess is that those are some of the better, more solid people that you have in your life. Because it is a minority of people who would do that. But that is what Kyle Rittenhouse did. And so he's in Kenosha that day, doing that. He had stayed over the night before at his friend's house. And now he finds out that there are some people who are going to be volunteering to guard businesses to keep them, hopefully, from being burned down, as a good portion of the Kenosha downtown had been the night before. If you haven't seen the pictures of the aftermath, I suggest you go look them up. I suggest you go look them up. It was carnage. The night before the shootings, he was at his friend's house in Kenosha, and the chaos was close enough that they could go outside on the front porch of his friend's house and smell the smoke and hear people screaming. And so a local business owner whose business had been attacked that night asked a group that included Kyle's friend to defend what was left the next night, and so now Kyle gets involved. And so he gets his AR-15, which did not cross state lines, by the way. That's something you keep seeing people say. It's not true. It was bought in Wisconsin by his friend. It stayed at his friend's house. It never went across state lines. Uh, that is another lie. He, but he gets his gun. He goes with some other people, and he heads down there, links up with some other guys who seem to know what they're doing, you know, military veterans, so forth. And there's video of him throughout the night. From, from journalists who were on the scene, offering medical aid to people, including protesters. Gage Grosskreutz, the, the man who was attacking Kyle with a loaded pistol when Kyle shot him in the arm and blew off his biceps, said that the first time he saw Kyle that night, he was providing aid to a protester. There's other video of him from before the shootings, and he's never being hostile, never being confrontational, always being very polite. He's just walking around with his medical kit saying, anyone need medical? Anyone need medical? Now, should he have been there? That question seems to me to be starting way up in the middle of the story. None of these people should have been there. 
National media and politicians shouldn't have lied to incite an attack on this town. The governor shouldn't have given in to pressure from the Democratic National Committee and refusing the request to deploy the National Guard to protect the city. Half the downtown had been burned down the night before. Everyone knew there was going to be a second night of it. The National Guard was requested and the governor said no. Why would he do that? Again, think back to last summer. The whole narrative from the media, from national politicians, was that the riots were these. It was a righteous outpouring of anger. And any attempt to use force to get them under control was some kind of fascist takeover of the country. Senator Tom Cotton wrote that op-ed in the New York Times. These are the most widespread and destructive riots in 50 years. Resulted in the deaths of something like 30 people. A U.S. senator writes an op-ed saying, the police can't handle this, obviously. Uh, we should think about deploying military forces to get control of the streets. The freaking editor of the New York Times was fired for that, for allowing that to be published. So all over the country, state and local officials are refusing to do anything at all to get the chaos under control, in my opinion, largely because of the presidential election. You know, Remember, we know from the Time Magazine piece, February of 2021, bragging about how a shadowy cabal of powerful interests, their words, not mine, were working behind the scenes to fortify the election. We know from that piece that the organizers of the summer protests were on weekly calls with media figures, Democratic Party operatives, as well as state and local officials to make sure that all of their efforts were in sync. Those are the words they used. Quote, the organizers who helped lead the racial justice uprising sparked by George Floyd's killing in May wanted to harness the movement for the 2020 election. These are the same groups that had protests, and let's be clear, riots, planned in 400 cities with troops in place waiting to be activated via text message on November 4th if the election didn't go their way. That's in that Time Magazine article. And they say, oh no, not riots, we planned protests in 400 cities. But these are the same people who planned all the summer protests that turned into riots. And just let's be real. There's not a single person that has any illusions about what would have happened. They were planning nationwide mass political violence in every town down to around 50,000 people. If you look at the 400th biggest city in the country, if the election didn't go their way. This is from Time Magazine. And they're praising it. Well, these people, the organizers of the summer riots were on weekly strategy calls with Democratic Party operatives, the state and local officials who were charged with keeping and restoring order, and with media people who were supposed to be reporting on all this, they're on weekly calls to make sure that they were best using the summer violence to help Joe Biden get elected president. That's what the Time Magazine article says. And so that's the context in which the incitement against Kenosha, Wisconsin happened. That's the context in which the Democratic governor of Wisconsin refused requests for the National Guard. And so the men of Kenosha and some of the surrounding area decided that they had no choice but to try to defend what they could of their community. And they should be commended for that. I cannot think of another instance since the Civil War when so many powerful institutions went out of their way to create the conditions to bring a violent assault down on an American city. The people of that town were completely abandoned and they had every right since their government had abandoned them 
as the most powerful institutions and people in the country were inciting an attack against their town to try to defend themselves. I mean, just look, do we really want to live in a country where someone who was attacked while trying to render medical aid and put out fires is the bad guy and the people creating the medical emergencies and starting fires are the victims because he defended himself from them? I just, I, I have nothing to say to the people who say that the people of that community had no right to collective self-defense from an attack largely by people from out of town. I have, I have nothing at all in common with people who are capable of thinking that. And so at a certain point late in the night, Kyle Rittenhouse is moving away from one of the locations that he was guarding. He's with an army vet, big guy, seemed to have some experience, and they are walking to a different location of the same business that they were asked to guard. And there's a video from this walk, quite a bit of it. And, and Kyle's kind of wandering around, sort of looks kind of a little lost, looks a little aimless. He, he looks like a little kid. And he's wandering around amidst some protesters asking, does anyone need medical? Does anyone need medical? And at a certain point, as they're walking, he and the veteran get separated, and Kyle loses track of him. And so he's looking around for the guy, and then he gets a call from his friend saying that there's a fire at the location that he had been headed to, and can he bring a fire extinguisher to help put it out? And so Rittenhouse gets an extinguisher and is making his way toward the location, now by himself, but he can't get there directly because of the police line. And so he detours and he ends up in the middle of a crowd of riled up protesters, some of whom have set a truck on fire. And so Kyle Rittenhouse has an extinguisher. So he starts running over to the truck to put it out. Now, earlier in the night, there is footage of Kyle and a few of the ones that he was with putting out a fire in a dumpster at the car lot that they were guarding. And a large crowd of protesters immediately gets in their faces, very confrontational, very angry that they had put out this fire. Well, when Kyle runs to put out the fire in the truck, in the trial they keep calling it a Duramax, which I assume is referring to a big Chevy truck with a Duramax diesel in it. Uh, I can't really make it out on the video. Um, when he does this, the crowd starts to turn its attention to him, this kid who's going to put out our fire. And on the video, you can hear Kyle Rittenhouse shout, Friendly, friendly, friendly. Something he had said several times throughout the night when he would encounter protesters who were not happy about his presence. He'd say, friendly, friendly, friendly. Only this time it didn't work. Because this time, one of the nearby protesters was someone that Kyle had seen earlier in the night, a man named Joseph Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum had been released from a mental institution that day after his second suicide attempt in recent months. There's video of him being extremely hostile and hostile in a very chaotic and undirected manner. There's video of him going up to people with guns saying, shoot me, nigga, bust on me, nigga, shoot me, nigga. You've probably seen the video. He's white, by the way. All three of the guys that Rittenhouse shot were white, in case you didn't know that, which is something that I assumed everyone knew. But there have been a bunch of examples on social media this week of people admitting that they found out for the first time while watching the trial that the people Rittenhouse shot were white. How is that possible? It is possible because our political and media elites are demons who want violence and who want chaos. Chaos gives the media more attention and it invariably gives 
more power to the people who are in power. So as I said, Kyle Rittenhouse had encountered Joseph Rosenbaum earlier in the night while he was still with the other volunteer guards. And according to multiple eyewitnesses who testified at the trial, Rosenbaum told Rittenhouse that if he caught him alone, then he would kill him. He said he would cut out his heart. Now, Joseph Rosenbaum is an example of a common type of person you find at these rallies. A lot of people don't know how Antifa works, so let me red pill you. It's not some big official organization like the Boy Scouts with hundreds of thousands of members. It is a loose grouping of semi-independent cells of hardcore activists who have connections, usually, uh, though not always, obscured by a few layers of nonprofit organizations to the big money coming into left-wing causes. Talk to any cop who has worked Antifa riots up close and they will all tell you the same story. Most of the people there are just transient dirtbags, um, a lot of mentally ill people, a lot of non-ideological criminals, and they show up to these riots because there's money to be made. Because behind the line, there are Antifa activists. These are the hardcore activists, which again are a minority of the people there. Back there handing out 20s and 100s to people to go put a brick through that window or go throw this shit bomb at that cop or go assault that person or go start a fire. And once the window's broken or the fire started and the scene's reduced to chaos, they leave the degenerates and the mentally unwell, unwell people that they incited to go fight it out with the police and they move on to the next location to do the same thing. That's how it works. And that's why whenever you look through the arrest records of the people who do manage to get themselves arrested at these things, it's just row after row of people with very sordid lives, lots of drug addicts, lots of mentally ill people, lots of criminals, very disproportionate number of sex offenders. These are the people that these things attract and the people that Antifa uses to carry out much of its actual violence. And so keep that in mind as well. Not only did the most powerful people and institutions in the country call down a violent assault on Kenosha, Wisconsin, they called down a violent assault by the worst people in society. Joseph Rosenbaum was a convicted sex offender, a child rapist who had done time for sexually assaulting, including anally raping five boys aged 9 to 11. What was he doing at a Black Lives Matter rally shouting the N-word? What, what was he there to do? He was there to do what he did, what he said he was going to do. When he saw Kyle Rittenhouse alone, finally, when he went to put out the fire in that truck, Joseph Rosenbaum tried to kill him. As Rittenhouse approached the Duramax to put it out, he got the crowd's attention, and he says, friendly, friendly, friendly. He puts down the fire extinguisher, and Joseph Rosenbaum turns his attention toward him. And so Kyle recognizes him and begins to run away. And Rosenbaum, the child rapist, sprints after him. He throws a bag at Kyle. At the time, Kyle doesn't know what it is, just that something's thrown at him from behind. Kyle turns as he's running away and points his weapon at Rosenbaum to try to get him to stop chasing him at one point, and Rosenbaum just continues to close on him. And so Kyle's running away again, and someone in the crowd behind him, maybe 50 to 100 feet away, fires a gun in the air. So now he's being chased by someone who threatened to kill him, who did not stop chasing him when threatened with a pointed weapon, and now a gun's been fired behind Kyle Rittenhouse as he's running away. He makes it up to a knot of cars with people clogging up the places that he might be able to get through and it's going to slow him down enough to get caught and so he turns to face Rosenbaum who's now feet away from him and Rosenbaum, Rosenbaum screams, 
fuck you and lunges for Kyle's gun. And Rittenhouse manages to evade the first lunge, but Rosenbaum's right on top of him, and he grabs the gun barrel, and Rittenhouse opens fire. He shoots four times in very quick succession. The prosecution has just disgustingly tried to make an issue out of the fact that two of the bullets hit Rosenbaum in the back. And it's been reported in a lot of media in a way that makes it sound like he was shot in the back the way we normally mean that. Not that he was attacking a miner who fired four rounds in quick succession, two of which hit him in the back as he was spun down to the ground. The journalist, Richie McGinnis, was right there, saw the whole thing, and he runs up and tries to help the guy who gets shot. And as he's doing that, out of the corner of his eye, he sees Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle's still there on the scene a few moments later. He doesn't run away. And Kyle pulls out his phone and calls the first number that comes up, which is the friend who had called him to come help with the fire in the first place. And he tells his friend that he just shot someone. His friend says, you got to go to the police. And by now, a hostile crowd is gathering around the scene, trying to figure out who shot Rosenbaum and saying, get him, get him. Even Richie McGinnis, the journalist who was trying to provide aid to Rosenbaum, ended up getting attacked, punched in the face, beat up, because someone said that he had done it. And so at this point, Kyle runs away. He runs toward the police line, which is some distance away, and people see him running, and they start to put two and two together, and now they're chasing him. The second attacker, Anthony Huber, is wielding a skateboard. He's coming up from behind. He throws it and hits Rittenhouse in the back of the neck or head, And Rittenhouse runs a little further and then stumbles and falls to the ground. And immediately when he goes down, another rider runs up and kicks him in the head. Immediately after that, Huber runs up. He's got his skateboard again, takes a swing at him with the skateboard, and then takes another swing at him. And Rittenhouse at that point shoots him at point-blank range from the ground in the chest. Right as that happens, Gage Grosskreutz, who had been chasing Rittenhouse with a drawn pistol in his hand, throws his hands up and stops from about six to eight feet away. And somehow, amidst all the chaos, this is all happening just boom, 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 super fast. And, and, and when your adrenaline's up and, and you're in the middle of it and people are coming from all directions, it happens unimaginably fast. Somehow, amidst all of that, when at the last second, Grosskreutz puts on the brakes and throws his hands up, despite the fact that he has a gun and he's maybe six to, feet, six to eight feet away, Rittenhouse somehow has the restraint and presence of mind not to open fire on this guy. Well, after Grosskreutz pretends to surrender, you can see Rittenhouse look down for a moment, and when he does, Grosskreutz renews his attack and runs up to Rittenhouse, pointing his loaded pistol at his head, and, Ro- and Rittenhouse shoots him in the arm holding, that's holding the gun. And Grosskreutz spins away, and again, amazingly, to anyone with any firearms or combat experience at all, Rittenhouse somehow doesn't just let off shots, but stops after he fires one shot into Grosskreutz's arm, despite the fact that Grosskreutz is still holding the gun. He should be writing Christmas cards to Kyle Rittenhouse for the rest of his life, thanking him for sparing his life. And so at that point, Rittenhouse gets up, And he makes his way toward the police line, which is now advancing toward the area. He puts his hands up and walks toward the oncoming police vehicles, and they tell him, get out of the way. So he gets out of the way and then tries to go up to the window of a police car to tell them what's happened, and the cop pepper sprays him to keep him away. And so from there, he goes back to the car lot where the people that he knew were, and things were now quieting down after the shots were fired. And so very soon, everyone's packing up and leaving, 
And Kyle Rittenhouse goes back to Antioch, Illinois, his town on the border, and turns himself in after about an hour. Anthony Huber, by the way, uh, also had a, a past. He had been convicted on a domestic violence charge for holding his brother and grandmother hostage, threatening them with a knife and forcing them to clean up the house, threatening to kill them. The third attacker, Grosskreutz, wasn't quite on the level of scumbag that Rosenbaum and Huber were, but he had been arrested a few times, including fairly recently for brandishing a gun while under the influence. He was carrying his pistol illegally, by the way. He wasn't supposed to have a gun at all. And he had come from out of town. Now, I simply defy anyone to look at that sequence of events and tell me in good faith what should have been done differently. I mean, you can say that maybe after the initial shooting of Rosenbaum, maybe all the subsequent people who chased after Rittenhouse and attacked him, that they were acting on good faith. Maybe they thought they were trying to take down an active shooter. You could make that case to try to defend them if they were on trial for chasing down and attacking Kyle Rittenhouse. But even if that's true that they thought that, it has no bearing on Rittenhouse's self-defense claim. The Wisconsin self-defense statutes are very clear and they're quite broad. Quote, A person is privileged to threaten or intentionally use force against another for the purpose of preventing or terminating what the person reasonably believes to be an unlawful interference with his uh, person by any other such person. The actor may intentionally use only such force or threat thereof as the actor reasonably believes is necessary to prevent or terminate the interference. End quote. Now, there is not a jurisdiction in the country where being attacked by an armed mob of which the initial attacker has already threatened to kill you if he got you alone, which has already fired a gun behind you while you were running away, chased you down, tried to grab your gun, hit you in the head with a skateboard, knocked you down, kicked you in the face, hit you with a skateboard again, tried to grab your gun again, and then come at you with a loaded pistol pointed at your head, all while the surrounding mob is shouting, get him, fuck him up, cranium that boy. There's not a jurisdiction anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, where the rule of law has any sway at all, where that sequence of events would not qualify as self-defense. There's not even a duty to retreat in Wisconsin. If somebody comes at you, some states it's not like this, but in Wisconsin, if somebody comes at you, you don't have to try to run away first before you can legally defend yourself. Quote, if an actor intentionally used force that was intended or likely to cause death or great bodily harm, the court may not consider whether the actor had an opportunity to flee or retreat before he or she used force, end quote. But despite that, of course, Rittenhouse did try to retreat. He was running for his life. Every single person he shot was at point-blank range because they were literally in the act of physically attacking him when he fired his weapon. According to Wisconsin law, you do not forfeit your right to self-defense even if you provoke the attack. Quote, A person who engages in unlawful conduct of a type that is likely to provoke others to attack him or her and thereby does provoke an attack is not entitled to claim the privilege of self-defense against such attack except when the attack which ensues is of a type causing the person to reasonably believe that he or she is in imminent danger of death or great bodily harm. In such a case, the person is privileged to act in self-defense, but the person is not privileged to resort to the use of force intended or likely to cause death to the person's assailant 
unless the person reasonably believes that he or she has exhausted every other reasonable means to escape from his or her assailant, end quote. Now, there's no evidence whatsoever that Kyle Rittenhouse provoked the attack by Joseph Rosenbaum. Rosenbaum was an unstable, violent felon who had threatened to kill people, including Rittenhouse, if he got them alone, and then chased Rittenhouse down and tried to grab his gun once he did see him alone. But even if Rittenhouse had provoked the attack, if he had walked up and spit in Rosenbaum's face or even punched him or, or put his gun in Rosenbaum's face, the law is very clear that his right to self-defense is made whole the moment he tried to run away and was chased down. Quote, The privilege lost by provocation may be regained if the actor in good faith withdraws from the fight. End quote. It is absurd that this kid is even on trial. It is a show trial. It is disgusting. They charged him with first-degree intentional homicide. Okay, that means Rittenhouse said to himself, I'm going to go kill these people, and then went and carried out his, his plan. You know, wh what an elaborate way to carry out a, a premeditated plan of murder. You're going to go stand near some, try to put out a fire, knowing that it's going to, this is, the, this is the case the prosecution's making, by the way. If you haven't watched it all week, it's crazy. They're literally, they're saying that you knew, didn't you, when you went to put out that fire, that you were going to provoke an attack because the people had gotten in your face earlier when you tried to put out a fire. And so they're making the case that you went and put out that fire knowing that it was going to result in you being attacked so that you could then shoot these people. That's literally the case that they're making. They're saying that in court. And again, it really comes down to the question of what kind of society do we want to live in? You know, do we want to live in a society where 17-year-olds are toting guns in the middle of a riot? Of course not. But the reality is, okay, the reality is that we live in a society where mass political violence has been completely normalized. And because it's being used as a political and ideological bludgeon to threaten and intimidate the people of this country, the authorities have abdicated their responsibility to protect lives and property. And so when you're saying a 17-year-old shouldn't be out there with a gun, you've got to own the fact that you're also saying rioters should be allowed to destroy and burn down cities without interference. I made a post on Twitter yesterday that I regret, uh, but the general point of which I stand by. I said that the different responses that people have had to the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, the unarmed female Air Force veteran in the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, and the reaction to the three shootings involving Kyle Rittenhouse were a very good sorting mechanism. And I brought, I brought Dan Carlin into it as an example, which I should not have done. Um, I don't know Dan Carlin, and he's a public figure who inserted himself into the public discourse on the issue, so he's fair game. But we have some common friends, and I should have refrained from using him as an example in public for that reason. Uh, but after the January 6th Capitol riot and the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, Dan released a Common Sense podcast. He doesn't do that very often anymore, but he felt strongly enough about this to put one out. He was talking about the shooting of Ashley Babbitt, the shooting at point-blank range of an unarmed woman who had not engaged in any acts of personal violence. And he said, when you go into someone else's house without permission, they're allowed to shoot you. Those people are lucky the police didn't kill 10 of them. That's what he said. And you know what? 
fair enough. Okay, I think that the execution of Ashley Babbitt was pretty obviously an excessive use of force. Uh, There were several geared up police officers right behind her who could have physically restrained her but just stood by and watched. But fair enough. Okay, because I have no patience for people who engage in disorderly political violence. We have a system in place. We have institutions in place. And if you feel that those institutions have failed so badly or become so unsalvageable that you have no, no, no choice, you have, the, you have the right or the duty to act outside the boundaries of the system, fine. Invoke the right of revolution, but understand that you have placed yourself outside the rules of the game and expect to have the full and unbridled force of the system brought against you. That's how it works. But there was a federal courthouse under attack for four to five months in Portland last summer. Firebombs thrown at it. Attempts to set the building on fire with people inside. And to set the doors on fire so that no one could escape. A very dangerous situation. Objectively more dangerous than anything that happened at the Capitol riot. Unquestionably, the people besieging the courthouse had already exhibited a willingness and an intent to kill the people inside. Now, if an unarmed female Black Lives Matter protester was shot at point-blank range by a federal officer in that courthouse while she was trying to climb through a window, do you think Dan Carlin would have released a special Common Sense podcast to say that the protesters were lucky that the cops didn't kill 10 of them? We know the answer to that. Of course he would not have. And I don't think there is any other reasonable explanation for the difference than the identity and the political affiliation of the people being shot. And that is what's driving everything we're seeing in this Rittenhouse case. It is a clear and obvious case of self-defense. Obvious. It's been obvious from the moment it happened when all that video came out. By a kid who was there that night to help the situation. Defending himself against convicted criminals who had come to destroy the town. In a sane world, that is as black and white a situation as you could ever find. But to a lot of people, Kyle Rittenhouse is the bad guy here simply because of who he is. And the child rapist and the domestic abuser and the guy rushing a down teenager pointing a gun at his head, they're the victims because of the political cause that they supposedly line up with. And more specifically because... They're foot soldiers for a cause that is sponsored by every elite institution in the country. No one even disputes, really, that he acted in self-defense. I mean, it's right there on video. The case of the prosecution and the case of everyone that you see on social media who still want him to burn is that his very presence was an unacceptable provocation to these criminals. And he should have known that. They know it fulfills every requirement of self-defense many times over, but they still want him to pay because, well, because fuck Kyle Rittenhouse. That's why they want him to pay. I hope the kid gets off and sues every politician and every publication that has uttered his name. And it's a funny thing because this case should be open and shut. Again, it's, it's absurd that he is even facing trial right now. But even as everybody knows, he acted in self-defense. I mean, there's just indisputable video proof of it. There is still a lot of doubt about what the jury will rule because people are afraid that a not guilty verdict will lead to more riots and put the jurors themselves personally at risk. And those are real fears, legitimate fears. 
Already someone's been caught filming the jurors as they went into the courthouse early in the morning. How would you feel about that if you were a juror? These people have lived the last few years with the rest of us. They know if CNN figures out who they are, it's not going to remain a secret. And then what happens? They don't want to see their town burned down again. They don't want to have Antifa and Black Lives Matter activists throwing Molotov cocktails at their houses where their kids sleep. And so who knows what they'll do? That's just part of the environment now, I guess. You know, if progressive activists don't like the way that a jury rules, or if they don't like the way that an election shakes out, or if they don't like the person being appointed to the Supreme Court, we've all got to board up our shop windows and evacuate the downtown because there might be violence. It's just part of the world we live in now. Just normal. We are a, a sick society in a very, very bad place.
Somebody might 